Babble, Bullshit, and Beyond, a podcast hosted by me, Marco Kiris, bringing you a standards perspective of the film industry and an immigrant's perspective on America. The most fluffy, fun, pop bullshit you can tune into. We've got Robert Zuckerman back on the podcast today, who I had the pleasure of working with on National Treasure. Robert suffers from a rare genetic disorder called adult polyglucosin disease, or APBD, which has put Robert in a wheelchair and ended his career as a renowned Hollywood set photographer. We decided to revisit Robert to get an update on the progression of his illness, his current project Kindsight, and hear his beautiful outlook on life. So, uh, so Robert, how are you? Are you comfortable? Yeah, it's it's good for the moment. It got, all of a sudden, it got very hot down here. Um, by the way, I just uh, you know this may or may not be of interest, but I just I just booked a gig down here. N- not this Wednesday, coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday uh-huh. uh, at the, the uh, nursing home where my mom and sister are. Yeah. I'm going to uh, do an hour of jokes for the uh, residents here. Wow, you're kidding! Talk about a late bloomer. You're becoming a jokester. <laughs> Well, I've done that. I've done it a couple of times over the last couple of years where I've gone to different senior homes and told jokes. And um, what's what's kind of uh, funny in a funny way about it is that sometimes these old ladies, 85, 90-year-old ladies, when I start telling a joke, they already know the punchline. <laughs> That's a joke in itself. Yeah. That's funny. You've got the Don Rickles uh, clientele there, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So, so they get it. At least they're sharp. Well, yeah, more more than more than uh, you would think sometimes. Yeah. So, um, Robert, just to touch on Kindsight, you have the one book which I have. Um, have you had a chance to work on the other two books, or have you kind of like um, held off on that for a while? Well, I, I have not held off on writing new pieces. I don't do it as frequently as I used to, but I, you know, it's kind of always there. And mm-hmm. uh, matter of fact, I just did another piece um, the day before yesterday and then, uh, you know, recently. So I've got enough material together. Now I'm just kind of looking uh, not really hard, but I'm, I was kind of just trying to decide whether I wanted to shop a deal to a publisher, you know, and get a, get another publishing deal. Because right now uh, I have the rights. I got the rights back, you know, from the publisher of the first book, whether I want to do that or I want to self-publish. You know, nowadays you can self-publish uh, mm-hmm. like through Amazon and other places just to get it out there. So, um, you yeah. know, it's I think it's going to happen within the next year, I would say year. I'm going to at least get number two out and possibly number three. So and then and then re-release the first one as like a box. So there'll be a set of, you know, three for three volumes. That's kind of the ideal plan, although I just haven't really moved on it yet. That's okay. You've been busy with other things, from what I see. Yeah. And uh, but it is a good plan. Uh, I'm actually excited about it. I, I, I hope you get a publisher for it. I'm surprised that uh, people wouldn't come yeah. on board. You know, a publishing company. Well, pu- the publishing business is is fickle, and it's kind of like you know the record business. Mm-hmm. The, the whole changed. And I was speaking to someone, um, uh, an author, a woman who's a professor. Uh, an associate professor at FIU, Florida International University, mm-hmm. where, I, where I have a consultancy. And she was she's published um, uh, like three novels and, and recently a nonfiction work. And she said that the publishing companies, the decisions to publish books are now 
determined by the marketing departments of the publishing companies. So it's, uh, hmm. you know, they find something that they think they can market and sell and then kind of work backward from there. So that's, that's what I was told by one, uh, you know, repeat author. Hmm. Um, okay. So, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I did go to the uh, publisher, you know, I'm sure you, uh, if you heard of uh, Humans of New York, mm-hmm. that series, it's kind of very similar to Kind Sight, although, mm-hmm. you know, it started a decade later, but it really took off in a big way. And um, I went to the publisher of that book uh, to see, you know, this is kind of the original pre-day. It's, you know, it's it's similar, but it's got its own style. And the, and the guy wasn't interested because of that, you know, that he was doing, you know, putting so much into Humans of New York and it was too similar. So I haven't really gone. I haven't really made an effort to go to other publishers, but, um, you know, it's there and I'm starting to look at it. It's a good choice. I, I think it'll work. Uh, just yeah. the right guy is going to see the light and just kind of like follow suit. And, and it could be, you know, as it is very similar, um, but touching people in a different way, I think. Uh, it's it's yeah. photographic art um, with poetry attached. I, I think it'll work well. Um, Robert, I want to ask you, how are you feeling, you know, with your condition about adult polyglucose and body disease? Where have you gone and have you progressed in terms of uh, feeling any better? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't notice necessarily any difference from a year ago. I would say that um, there was kind of the, the last sort of level or plateau that I went through was, um, I would say, like in 2013, at the beginning of the year, I was actually able to get up uh, from my scooter and uh, walk a little bit, you know, move about a hmm. tiny bit. But by the middle of 2013, I was not able to stand up on my own at all. So, um, you know, uh, not bear any weight on my feet. So that's kind of been the situation since I would say going on four years now um, where, you know, I can't stand up. uh, And if I have to go from my scooter to someplace else, it's a matter of, you know, positioning and transferring uh, somehow, you know, um, which I still am able to do, although uh, it's, it depends um, on my energy. Like sometimes when my energy is low, if I sometimes my legs will give out uh, mm-hmm. when I'm transferring, meaning you know, even though I'm holding myself up with my hands, my I will just collapse to the floor and it will take me a long, long time to get up, you know, to where I'm back in my chair. Um, huh. So other, other than that, the symptoms are, you know, fairly similar or stable of, other than the, uh, you know, the, the immobility. My upper body seems to be OK. Uh, well, I've had this since, um, maybe 2006, a, a tremor in my right hand. So I can't really eat or serve food, uh, to myself with my right hand because it'll just shake too much. So I do things with my left hand as far as that goes. Um, you're being more of an artist because artists are left-handed. So maybe you're creating a little more. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate the, I love the rationalization. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> no, but it's, um, the other things is, uh, when I was first diagnosed uh, back in 2010, I was diagnosed by a neurologist at UCLA, and he told me that of the symptoms, you know, the loss of use of my legs, uh, hmm. urinary incontinence, the tremor, that also you will ex- may experience what he referred to as disinhibition. Hmm. And I said, uh, well, does that mean I'll stand on, on the street corner and curse at people? <laughs> and he said, maybe. I said, well, because I, I already do that. I said, don't worry about it. No, but, um, you know, I'm a 62-year-old guy in a wheelchair, 
and I can pretty much say anything to anybody and get away with it. Uh, <laughs> Robert, let me ask you, with, um, with this condition, is there any medical improvement in terms of uh, research that maybe Dr. Levinson has found out, or um, has there yeah. not been any, any progress that you have heard of yet? Um, at this point, there was a, um, no, they have not come up with a, with a cure. One thing that they've improved is the diagnosis. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was diagnosed, I, uh, you know, first of all, I went through years of MRIs and other stuff, which weren't really getting at that. When I finally connected with Dr. Fogel at UCLA, um, after about uh, maybe f- almost six years of trying other things, I connected with Dr. Fogel, who was a neurologist at UCLA who diagnosed me. Back in that time, it was maybe 2008, I had to get, um, I had like multiple genetic tests. I had uh, biopsies, and then I had another biopsy and called a sural nerve biopsy in my lower left leg in the calf. And, um, you know, finally, through all of that, he was able to diagnose me. Well, now uh, you can get someone can send you a test tube, you spit in it and send it back, and they can diagnose you from that. Oh, my so God. As far as, far, as far as the diagnosis is concerned, I think that's improved. They're still working on right now. Um, there was one clinical trial at uh, Baylor in Dallas. I participated in briefly, but it didn't yield any uh, any any uh, cure. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's another. They're now starting a new clinical trial in Israel, and we're seeking. Um, I'm on the board of the organization, and they're you know seeking funding to try and start a new clinical trial of a different. Uh, drug here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, no cure yet, but they're, you know, working on different theories uh, of things that will, uh, you know, affect the, the um, you know, it's the glycogen branching enzyme, which causes the disease. And it's, you know, I'm not really up on the scientific part of it so much, but, but to answer your question, no cure yet, and uh, maybe an improvement in the diagnosis. Each and every time I saw you, uh, you would just talk to anybody, Robert, anybody on the street. Didn't matter who it was. You'd speak yeah. to them. You'd take a photograph. You're done. But it's not that you set it all up. You had lighting. You had this year. You just take the photograph, and then somehow it appears, and it looks like it was done in a studio. And then you have right. a story behind it, which leads us into Kindsight. Yes, Can you yes. elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, again, um, it's called Kindsight. That wasn't the original title of it, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, it comes from a desire of, of wanting to do something meaningful with what you do in life and somehow that will have a positive effect. And um, I had, uh, just to go back in the, in the early 90s, uh, right around 1992, before The Crow and so forth, I had ended a relationship, uh, like an eight-year relationship, and I was looking for something meaningful to do in life. And um, at that Focus on AIDS benefit where I had donated a photograph. I met a family there that were admiring my photograph and they were volunteers in an AIDS hospice in Van Nuys. And they asked me, do you want to join us and be a volunteer in this AIDS hospice? So I joined them in this, uh, being a, a, a volunteer at this hospice. And the, and the residents of the hospice were people who didn't have families or, you know, low income. And they just, you know, the volunteers became like their family. And during my time there, after I gained the trust of people, they allowed me to photograph them. And there were some really stark, amazing, you know, powerful photographs. The following year, um, in 1993, there was a, uh, a, a citywide exhibit. The theme was AIDS and HIV. And it was hundreds of artists in many venues displaying their works. And, 
you know, painting, photography, whatever. In the particular venue I was in, which was up in the valley, um, there was another artist there who was a painter, and she was HIV positive. She was from the Bay Area. She was HIV positive and albino, and she painted these flowers, which you're going back to emotional content. They were just abstract, but they just resonated a lot of feeling. And in her artist statement, which was on the wall by her exhibit, she said another thing that really became like a hallmark and resonated with me. She said, the more personal my expression, the more universal its meaning. In other words, you know, Hollywood, they're always trying to put packages together from the outside in. Just come from your heart and people will connect with it. That's what she was saying. And that became like another hallmark or something that I embraced in my work. Just be personal, just be real, come from the heart, and you'll transcend a lot of boundaries with that. So flash forward, uh, you know, eight years, uh, we have 9-11 happening. And in, the, in that time, you know, the world became very dark and paranoid. And, and you know, the, uh, I guess um, sort of uh, shadowed, you know, in the, in, the, in the specter of terror. Everything was about terror. And I was talking to a friend of mine at the time, and we were, came to the realization that the antidote or the antithesis of terror is in the richness of everyday life that's all around us. So between that, uh, going back to that uh, bit of wisdom about the more personal my expression, the more universal its meaning, I just felt that I began, I began documenting random encounters with people on the street, in the bus, wherever I happened to be, and found out that the richness of everyday life was everywhere and just a matter of stopping and talking to someone. So I began documenting these random encounters and random moments, uh, and that's how that series started. And I just found it to be something so rich and I began doing it, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, one of my early uh, fans of that and encouragers of that was uh, Stephen Burris. Uh, you're kidding. <laughs> no, no. Actually, and, and on, on, the, on National Treasure, you know, and I would show him the pieces, and he really liked them. And so in, um, I had been calling it something else at the time. I would used the working title of Transmission because mm -hmm. I felt it was about the transmission of spirit. But I knew that wasn't going to be the final title. And then you know how you're having, you're just walking around and you have a, a thought pops into your head. Mm -hmm. And so that name Kindsight came into my head. And that's, uh, that was around in 2004. And I named that and I actually got a trademark on it. And so that was the title of the book. The first book came out in early 2005. And it was a collection of those pieces. And, um, you know, uh, I call it, I, I, I've coined another phrase. I call it the power of hello just like saying hello to someone and starting a conversation you're going to get something like that and it's uh, it's it's really amazing and it's not in the book but in um 2008 when uh I was working on the second Transformers movie most of it was filmed in New Mexico but at the very end they took uh they took like 40 American crews to film one week in Egypt and one week in Jordan and I got to go and it was really amazing and the first the first morning we were filming by the pyramids. That was our first stop. We were in Cairo, mm -hmm. and uh, they were taking, uh, you know, they were putting us, they had us on a bus. We were at the Ho Intercontinental Hotel. They put us on a bus. We were supposed to go to the pyramids, but for some reason, the paperwork or the permits weren't completed, so they couldn't take us right in, and they brought us to a dirt lot uh -huh. about a mile away from the pyramids. And we're sitting there, and at the time, I was w using a cane. I was walking with a cane. We were sitting there, uh, and after about an hour, there was across the dirt lot, there was a, a group of elderly Egyptians sitting in chairs. And a gentleman, a, a man, 
I would estimate probably like late 60s, 70 years old. He waves me to come over. So I go over to him and I'm with my cane standing there and he says to me uh, in broken English, he goes, where are you from? And you know, when someone usually asks you that, you automatically answer, well, I'm from LA or I'm from New York. Yeah. Or but for some reason, I just dropped down to the ground and patted the dirt with my hand. I go, I'm from here. Oh. And his eyes, his eyes widened and he looked at me and then he made the person next to him get up out of her chair and he invited me to sit next to him. So I sat next to him and then I, I, uh, I said, I asked him to hold out his hand and I put my hand next to his and, you know, side by side. And I said, look, the same. And we had this amazing conversation probably for about an hour and, uh, I gave him my business card. And then after about, you know, two months later, I got, I was back in LA. I get an email one morning, uh, it says Farid Karim wants to be your friend on MSN instant messenger. And, <laughs> you know, just the idea that, uh, just opening up and having a conversation with someone half a world away, who's got, you know, different complexion, different clothes, different language, but somehow we found common ground. Yes. And I, and I feel that's the way it is with most people. If you just are attuned to that. Yeah. Was it John Turtletaub or um, Jeff Goldblum who said that in uh, when you interviewed him that you just you talk to people you give them their email you give them a, yeah yeah, yeah. Was was it Turtletaub Turtletaub <laughs> it's just like <laughs> yeah it's just like we want to move on it's just like he's you know he can't leave the room he's got to talk to this guy he's got to explain he's got wants to know who this guy is so it's yeah. the the fact is that you're generally interested in everybody, Robert. I saw that at your premiere. Like everybody, didn't matter if it was the bellboy. Didn't you just asked? You spoke to everybody on the street. Anybody right. who came by, you were just asking, photograph them, talk to them. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Where are you from? Hey, what's your name? Oh, wow, where are you from? Yeah. Oh, that's great. How are you? And then you spoke in their languages, whether it was in Arabic, whether it was in in Yiddish, in Greek. I mean, it didn't matter. You just you knew a couple of words and everything, and they all connected. They're just like, oh, who's this guy? Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, I, and, I'm, <laughs> and it really, that's where also kind sight is an extension of that, about uh, what I call the humble premiere that you had for the, uh, for the 11-minute short, which I saw, right. Robert. Uh, and I said to you before, it really should be a full-length documentary yes. feature. I mean, it yes. was great that they did it. I'm, sh I'm sure it took a lot of time and cost energy, time, and money to do it. But there should be a feature film on you because we want to touch on... Uh, on your condition as well. That's that's kind of like the where I want to go to after this, um, because you really have three parts. This kind side is like the last 15 years, and it's very it's kind of uh, taken a lot of a lot of time and uh, and creativity from you to produce these things. Yeah. But uh, and part of that, you were this this huge stills photographer, the mogul of still photographers in Hollywood, and uh, it would be great for them to hire you again. And have a yeah. backup photographer as well for those tough shots that have to climb up ladders and, you know, go up the right. mountain and stuff. But there's no reason why they couldn't have you on a set and right. do right. the things that you can do. Um, everything yeah. but climb up a mountain at the end of the day. And, and it would be nice to see that. And then, of course, the other part is the APBD. And, which right. I'd never heard of, but in the premiere, it, it touched on it, but it didn't say that much about it. I Well, I'll just backtrack a little, give a little bit of a history. That, um, you know, as I said, I began uh, limping and having mobility impairments sort of in early 2003. Uh, a friend of mine had said, you know, to me, hey, why are you limping? And I really hadn't, I kind of noticed it, but it brought it to my attention. And I began having tests. Uh, the mobility impairment, you know, slowly uh, worsened over time. And I 
was in Los Angeles. I was uh, seeing a neurologist at uh, Cedar sinai They had, you know, given me a lot of uh, MRIs and uh, different tests, uh, spinal taps, you know, hundreds of scans and so forth. And they first speculated it might be MS, and they, you know, ruled that out and some other things. Anyway, after about four and a half years there, I, I decided, well, this isn't really going anywhere, and, I, and my condition was worsening. I wanted to get, so I switched to UCLA, saw one doctor there. Um, she didn't really know, come up with anything, but another doctor there caught wind of my case, and he, became, he took a personal interest in it. Dr. Uh, Brent Fogel, a uh, really brilliant neurologist, young neurologist there. And he eventually was the one that gave me, after almost eight years, a diagnosis of APBD, which is a short for uh, adult polyglucosin body disease, which is a, at the time that I was diagnosed, there were only about 50 known cases of it. Very rare genetic disease that comes through both parents. Um, it's hereditary, and most of the people affected uh, are Ashkenazi Jews, meaning Jews of Eastern European origin. And um, it's untreatable, it's progressive, they don't really know where it goes. Um, they say that, uh, you know, it does affect the lifespan. And, um, you know, by the time I was diagnosed, which was late 2010, I was already at that point using a mobility scooter, although I could still get up and walk with a cane, uh, you know, a certain distance. But, um, as of like early 2013, I was not able to bear any weight on my feet. So I've, you know, become you know, officially like paraplegic. I can't even stand up, uh, you know, and getting my clothes on and things like that is, is a great struggle. I have to do all sorts of, you know, contortions and, you know, be near my chair and so forth. Um, so anyway, um, when I was diagnosed in late 2010 um, at, at UCLA, Dr. Fogel got me into a clinical trial uh, in, at Baylor University, at Baylor Medical School in Dallas, Texas, there was a, one clinical trial going on for a substance that they thought could have been, you know, useful for that. And I went down there, and uh, I went down there. It required me to be on this, uh, take this oil four times a day for a whole year. Half of it was going to be a placebo, and half of the year was going to be the real thing. But because of my, all of a sudden, you know, lack of work and my financial condition and taking care of my family in Florida. I have a mom and two disabled sisters there that I support. Um, I wasn't able to really stay up with the trial. And also the trial requires that the person be able to walk, which I couldn't do. So I was, I had to discontinue the trial, but the, um, one of the partners in the trial, there was a doctor and, and his, his associate, she referred me to people with the APBD, the adult polyglucosin research foundation, uh, in New York City, and that's where I connected with them. And uh, Dr. Jeff Levinson, who's a dentist in New York, who, who doesn't have the disease himself, but has been with the, or, uh, the Research Foundation since 2005, running it, an amazing guy. He and his wife and their daughter and their son, the family, they have two daughters. You know, I became close with them. And so back in uh, the fall of 2014, I had an exhibit of my photographs at the, which you came to the oh, yes. opening for was at the uh, 92nd Street Y in New York. And it was an exhibit of my kind sight pieces. And somehow Dr. Levinson uh, felt that there's a connection between kind sight and what I'm doing and with the disease. And somehow the fact that I'm doing these things and, but in a, you know, uh, a position where many people would just give up and go into a home or a facility, I'm still doing a lot of things. You know, he felt that that was somehow inspirational, how one person deals with it. 
and that's how the idea for this film came about. They started filming me, and um, you know, over the course of the last year and a half, made it into this you know this 11-minute piece that is designed, uh, intended to bring awareness about APBD and also about how one person can deal with challenges. Which, for me, I'm not a scientist, so you know, the genetic stuff. I mean, I leave all to them. For me, it's more about persevering and being able to do things and not limiting myself you know, based on this, even, even though there are challenges and hardships. So for me, that's what the whole experience was about. And so they, we finished the film and it was submitted, to, just started submitting it to the Manhattan Film Festival and they accepted it. So what a great place to have a, a premiere in, at the Manhattan Film Festival. So that's what I was doing there and you know, that's how that came about. So now I understand how that happened. I couldn't figure out how it all yeah. kind of got together. It was a nice yeah. little festival, and they did a great job. I, yeah. I, I thought it was a great little film. I wanted to see more. It wasn't enough. You know, there's no, so much more going on, how you got there, how this this disease has progressed. I read right, something right. about this uh, poor lady who passed away. I think her name was Judith or Judy. Judith Cryer, yeah. that's. I met her on my first uh, my, my first visit to Dallas for the clinical trial. Yes, and that you kept in contact with her, and uh, unfortunately, over time, she had passed away. And uh, I saw the photograph of you and her, and I thought that was really sweet. And it was a yeah. nice photograph. It's a shame. But I don't know how, uh, Robert, you deal with this, and you have the two sisters and your mother right. and your condition. And at the same time, you still have to eat and fly around. And you're in Los Angeles, and then you're in Miami, then you're in New York, all in a week. And you're seeing people and, and all kinds of people. And you still get through your days, and you're still fine. And you have to get up and board a plane or get in a car or wheel your way down the street or deal with traffic. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. Well, that's a good question. I don't know either. And it's just I kind of just... Uh try to see the positive and don't think about it. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I went through a whole process of, uh, being really devastated because during my years in Hollywood, I always gave 200% and went overboard and, you know, went above and beyond. And then all of a sudden my phone, you know, went, went dead and went silent. Even many of the people that I worked for before, you know, stopped hiring me. And yet, um, somehow, and I think I've, I've shown this to you, I've just done this because for me, it's just, um, in some way, you know, that I've done these compilations where I've been the highest ranked photographer on mm -hmm. IMDB, which the rankings change every week, but many weeks I've been the top ranked photographer above Annie Leibovitz. And yet I've worked, you know, five days in the last three and a half years and, you know, had to undergo financial devastation, had to go on disability. And I'm trying not to give too much juice to that because I feel just the same way that I told you before, how I got into my photography career by my two business partners trying to screw me over and a negative really turned out to be a positive. I'm trying to apply that same thing now. And because while I still love doing photography every day, I've also, you know, kind of uh, moved my way into this new uh, arena of education and inspiration and trying to take those things and turn them into a livelihood. You know, I'm trying to focus more on that and not you know, we only have a certain amount of time here. Mm -hmm. And um, there was another great quote that I like in Reader's Digest. It said something about uh, the effect of um, often we have all the time in the world for our enemies, but little time for our friends, meaning the negatives in our life can sometimes uh, uh, consume us and we can devote all our time to that. And um, uh, I saw Sylvester Stallone say this once on Johnny Carson. Uh, and my my dad also once said, my dad who I, um, that's a whole other story, but 
we became very close after not being together earlier in my life. We became very close. My dad was great with numbers. And I remember one night he was talking and he basically calculated how many seconds I had left in my life. And I, you know, I was in my early 50s at the time. And he, you know, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour. And you can just mathematically figure out how many seconds there are in a year and go so forth. And the number really actually isn't that big a number. So the question is, how do you want to spend that finite amount of time that you have here? And you never know when, when death is going to come. It could come in you know, 20, 30, 50 years, or it could come tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so, so how do you want to spend your time here? And that's another choice that you have to make. And so I've decided, well, with this thing in Hollywood, difficult it is and hurtful it is as it is and has been, I really want to focus my energy on, on the positive. And on, uh, and so I've been, you know, working a lot down here the last few years with Miami Dade's uh, school system. I have a, con- I now have a consultancy with um, FIU, Florida International University, which is an amazing university. And so I'm just, you know, trying to move my way and focus more on that, uh, of empowering people, of uh, sharing what I have, my my experience, and somehow making that of benefit to other people. Robert, so. with that, are you teaching there as well part-time, or are you giving speeches or lectures down at the uh, the university in Florida? And I also noticed that you have exhibits. There's a, there are three yeah. permanent exhibits in three different hospitals, two in the Miami area and one in Los yeah. Angeles. Well, yes, except uh, the one hospital, uh, Aventura Hospital, which had an exhibit, uh, was gonna, intended to be permanent, but it, after three and a half years, they did a renovation, so that one came down. So now it's actually in two hospitals, Jackson Memorial Hospital and Cedar sinai And Cedar sinai it's in a major hallway there. It's been up uh, since 2009. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great because uh, to be in art galleries is, is one thing, but it shows up for a month and then it's down. I wanted to have exhibits in a place that's more part of the life there that can be part of, you know, especially in a hospital where it can give inspiration or give something, of, like I said, of value to the hospital community, both to the workers and the patients and so forth. So, yeah, so that I'm doing, you know, trying to do that more as well. That's a lot of stuff for somebody who's not that mobile, uh, Robert. I mean, can you even expand it to teaching or giving uh, paid sessions to universities? Yeah. uh, To a lot of challenged kids. There are many people and and they have, you know, mental challenges as well. Uh, Can you not do that to many colleges and universities? And is it an option to be able to be hired in that uh, realm? Well, it is. It's just a matter of making it happen. But I feel now I've I've done a lot of work uh, since the first Kindsight book was published in 2005. I guess since January of 2006, I've done many school visits pro bono on my own just because I wanted to give back to students. So I feel confident and well-versed enough now to be able to do that and to, and to make it meaningful and valuable to people. And um, so, yes, I'm, that's something else that I've got to explore, and I'm trying to, you know, start to get into that. Now, I do, I do um, through my consultancy at, at FIU, I do give master classes, but it also it's kind of a make-it-up-as-you-go position. Mm-hmm. So I've done different things. For, for instance, I work with a lot of high schools on behalf of that. I go to different high schools and give workshops and try to empower young people and the students that you're going to be able to do. And all these things you couldn't do if you were working in Hollywood um, right. because you would have been a stills photographer probably working in Iowa this month, you know, on some, right. some big action flick. So you <laughs> right. created, so the, the, in hindsight, 
like this is really a, a wonderful thing because you've created yes. so much and touched so many different lives, Robert, in my opinion, right. from this, you know, debilitating right. disease right. that uh, unfortunately has, has kind of taken a hold of you. But it's inspired you to do so many other things and your mind is super sharp and so is your vision. Obviously, you can create better now than ever before. I think so. It's, it's just interesting how, you know, there's the old thing about uh, when certain things get suppressed or challenged and other things become stronger. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's really true. It's like, um, you know, like, like the old martial arts, the old blind karate master who can like, you know, kick 20 guys' asses even though he's old and blind. And that's kind of how I feel in a little way that, you know, other things have come out because of the challenge. So it's actually um, another great, great quote that I like is uh, from... Uh, Art Linkletter. I don't know if you remember Art oh, Linkletter. Oh, I, I remember Art Linkletter. Yeah, and he was, you know, when I was a kid in the early 60s, he was a TV host, but he had some great quotes, and my favorite quote of his, he says, um, things turn out best for people who make the best of how things turn out. And to me, that's just been very empowering and a, kind of a bellwether of just, you know, how you approach things uh, in, in situations like that. So... I think these are uh, groundbreaking ideas, and they're all based on good. And yeah. uh, again, Robert, none of this would have happened if you were busy on a film set. Right, uh, 16, 16 hours a day, and then, you know, tram, tram, you know, you get like three hours of sleep or something. And then, yeah. yeah, exhausted, on, on flu medicine all day long, tired, eating the wrong food, <laughs> feeling yeah. miserable, no sight of, uh, of life after that. But now that you're full of life now more than ever before, as I feel as that I've broken away from it and I needed that challenge just to like regroup with myself, which is what you're doing. And yeah. one last thing about the APBD, um, Robert, do you feel it's gonna, you're gonna be in the same kind of position for several years to come? Do you think it may get a little better? Do you think things may slide a little? Where, where do you see things? Well, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to say. Um, you know, because, uh, I mean, things have, have, have uh, the, the condition has progressed. When, I'm, when I say progressed, it means advanced or gotten worse, you know, slowly over time. I first started noticing it, you know, having the symptom in 2003. But um, who knows? You know, I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, my philosophy is my approach is I'm just going to do the best I can for as long as I can. And, um, uh I don't know. I mean, they are they are they are doing research, hopefully trying to find a cure. There's some really good uh, uh, by, uh, experiments going on, and and you know work research work in Israel, also in New York, and in other places. So maybe they'll come up with something that can uh, you know reverse or mitigate the effects of it. Um, and there's also certain mechanical things that you know they have, like I've seen like you know they're developing. They call them exoskeletons. They're basically things that you strap on your body that enable people who are mobility impaired to get up and walk. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't have, I don't have, I'm just taking it day by day and just doing the best I can right now. Okay. Well, I have to say that you're doing great. I mean, really Thank great, you. Robert, with everything that you're doing and how you're feeling and how you're progressing and, and every day is a challenge, but every day is another bright yeah. day. But I'm very proud of you. I'm happy that I know you. I feel very fortunate. I feel fortunate that I met the Levinson family as well. Um, yeah. Your story is fascinating, Robert. Your life story I has been fascinating. Uh, the fact that you've done everything you've done and you still have great spirits to this day. So, Robert, I won't keep you much longer. That's uh, it's, It was just a, um, yeah. a fun little follow-up of where we're at. You know, anytime, anytime. I, lo I love doing this. I, I love hearing about this stuff.
you know, I try to feel like speak for the whole spectrum of people with disabilities. And it's about, you know, what I like to do, view myself as an example of someone who, who you know, can keep going. And uh, that, you know, I hope to, uh, you know, be an example in a similar situation. Yeah, I, I think you are. And I think to people who aren't in that situation, you're a fine example overall. Can never complain. Never compl- I never complain because I think about these things. I actually do think about it. I appreciate it. And, and you're, you're a great interviewer, a great conversationalist. And, um, you know, I really appreciate uh, the interest taken in me in this, in this situation. So, Well, it's, a, it's sincere, and uh, I'm very interested in the Kindsight books. So uh, All right. I'll, I'll let you go. Take care of your sisters and, uh, and your mom, Robert, yeah. and I'll speak to you soon, all right? All right. Have a great weekend, and thank you both. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. That's the end of our podcast with Robert Zuckerman. Although Robert struggles physically day to day, his mind and his spirits remain nothing short of inspirational. Until next time, this is Marco Curis signing off.